0: This evening's topic is, again, what's your motivation? What is it that motivates you in your Christian experience? And I wanted to start with a couple um, Google searches that I had. When you see signs that say this, warning, Jesus Christ will return, are you born again? Or everyone gets a ride sooner or later, it's a hearse, and it says everyone gets a ride sooner or later, the question is, where are you going when you die? Global warning. You see what they did there? Instead of global warming, global warning. Jesus will return. Are you ready? Now, what emotions are generally being awakened when you see signs like this? What emotion comes to mind? Fear, right? Using fear to get people to make a decision. Here's another one. Clean up your house and get in order, this little guy says, because Jesus is coming. Warning, 666 is coming. And then this one in the bottom right corner, few will be taken. Does that give you hope? Oh. So fear. Is fear something that should be motivating us in our religious experience? Is that what we should be working with? Is that what we should be using to reach folks? Thankfully, none of these are Adventist publications, by the way. I've seen this on a semi-truck a few times because I drive a lot on the interstate just for travels. And I see this picture, and it just really frustrated me. There's this angry-looking man pointing his finger at you, and it says, did you pray today? Again, using this sense of like fear and intimidation, is this what should motivate us as Christians? What about this one? Two choices, right? It's your choice. You can take the escalator going up to a bright light or an escalator going down with flames. Uh, there's this fork in the road. There's bad stuff on the right. Good stuff on the left. Heaven or hell, the choice is yours. Fear. What about reward? What if our motivation is just that we get something good at the end, right? There's this beautiful celestial city. There's angels. There's rainbows. There's children riding briefcases with wings on them. I don't really know what that is. (laughs) But there's hot air balloons, and that looks like fun next to rainbows. And then there's this beautiful Nathan Green poster. And I'm not saying that heaven isn't a beautiful place. This isn't my point. I'm going to make a very good point, I hope, uh, through the course of this evening. But the question is, what is it that's motivating us in our Christian experience? Is it the fear of hell? Is it the hope of the reward of heaven? Is that what it is that drives us? And is it okay if that's what drives us? That's the question. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with these things being the motivation what I'd like to do is unpack with you something that has been very, very helpful for me. I stumbled across an article. Um, they had this like nerdy theological publication called the the Journal for the Adventist Theological Society. Not an iPad, uh, but I have an article from there. That was actually written in 1991. Now, how many people in this room were actually alive in 1991? Yeah, they're not, not a lot of you, right? But this article is absolutely amazing, and I'm going to get to that in a moment, but I need to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll enter our study. What's your motivation? I'm going to kneel. just want to invite you to bow your heads with me. God in heaven, I thank you for this privilege to have this time with these young people, and I just pray that you would bless us, not only with your presence, but, Lord, that you would open our eyes to what it is that motivates us, and I pray that we would have the right motives in our Christian experience, and that we would be uh, very reflective this evening as the way it is describing us. I thank you for this article, I thank you for the blessing it's been to me, pray you would bless these young people, and that we would see you do something here that we would not soon forget. And we ask for the Spirit's guidance now, in Jesus' name, amen. So, the article is called, The Role of the Law in Salvation. Uh, If you just Google this in Google. Anyway, if you search for this in Google, The Role of the Law and Salvation by Lewis R. Walton. He's an Adventist attorney uh, who I believe is still practicing out in California. I need to call him, but I didn't get a chance to do that today. Anyway, in this article, he kind of lays out, he starts his article. It's basically a sermon, I think, is what it is. And I'm just going to borrow. I'm not going to do all of it, but I will cover some really, really good things in here. He makes the point that we as the Seventh-day Adventist movement are of the mind that God has given us a very precious message, a very important message to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We believe that, right? Do, do we believe that? Okay, just making sure I'm in the right room. I could have walked in the wrong building. So we believe that that's actually the case and that this message should radically turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. In 1991, when he was looking at the landscape, we still have a lot of work to do, right? Right? And he makes this point that, in other words, we seem to have, we've not fully lived up to the potential of our faith. And the article that he quotes from is, is what he's talking about. But then he says, this guy's observation is illustrated dramatically in the statistics of our own youth. Now, this is 27 years ago, but this was already a troubling statistic then. He says, it is now clear that by the time they reach 18 years of age, well over half of our young people functionally sever their church connections. Roger Dudley has reported some unflattering remarks by Advent youth about the message that we believe will change the world at the end of time, right? This is what the young people in the Advent movement are saying about the movement that's supposed to prepare the world to stand for Jesus, okay? No fun on Saturdays until the sun is down. It's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's dull and it gets in the way. This is what some people were saying in this study, young people. He says, I personally remember a young relative brought up in an impeccably Adventist home, romping gleefully through the house late one Sabbath afternoon while saying, Oh boy, oh boy, only 10 more minutes till sundown. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you've ever been in that situation. Throughout such remarks, one finds a common theme. They relate negatively to the law, the same law that we believe is going to judge the world. A reverse but equally illuminating view of this problem can be found in remarks by Adventist youth who decided not to leave the church. According to Dudley, even faithful young Adventists said the following, I have a lot of work to do if I want to be saved. I wish I could be completely good, but it's not always easy. I don't know if I'll be able to stand up for it when the time of trouble comes. And again, I won't ask you to raise your hands if you're in that category either. Once again, my memories corroborate this. I well recall the words of an academy classmate reflecting the uncertainty we all shared. His friend said, I wish I knew if I'm going to be saved, because if not, I sure want to have fun. If all church members had the gift of frankness so unique to youth, many Adventists of mature years might express similar sentiments. Indeed, some have in a phenomenon we call new theology. Perhaps we've reached a point where it takes, where it's time to ask a question that we've not asked amongst conservative Seventh Avenue circles. Granted that the law is a vital part of our theology, have we nevertheless made a basic mistake in our relationship to it, unintentionally programming ourselves and our youth for failure? Does he have your attention? I could. I, I found this book on a shelf. Some people were just giving books away, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll take that. And when I started to read this article, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I thought, whatever this guy has to say, sign me up. I'm interested. Here's where he goes with this. As one listens to the remarks of Adventist youth, three predominant factors stand out. A desire for heaven, a dread of hell, and a haunting fear that they might try and fail to reach heaven, thus losing this earth's pleasures as well. Ever wrestled with that? Put all these ingredients in a blender, mix well, and a single substance emerges— And he says, egocentricity, self-centeredness, basically. Religious interest, or lack thereof, comes to depend upon what religion can do for me at any given moment. Implicit in such an outlook is the real danger that when confronted by a self-centered temptation, one's religious motivations crumble. We might be tempted to dismiss religious egocentricity as a frailty particular to young people, but it's not. Young people have, after all, learned their religion largely from us. And he's speaking to us older folk. They've learned their religious experience from us. They've heard us tell mission stories and then watched us spend our money. They've heard us pray and then they've heard us argue. They've heard us plan for the time of trouble with heavy emphasis on our own survival and all too little genuine concern for a world full of souls to be judged by our own theology. When one examines the basic motives that seem to have driven our youth, a disquieting truth emerges. These same motives have often driven adults as well. This isn't actually a young people problem. It's a people problem. Something at the motivation level. So there's two things here. Our motives deserve examination. First, a desire for heaven. Scarcely a Sabbath passes in any Adventist church without prayerful requests for the soon coming of Jesus so that we can go home to heaven. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. Any rational being naturally wants to be there. But upon examination, the motive is basically self-centered. We want heaven's freedom from pain and worry, reunification with departed family members, and freedom from temptation. Rarely do we dwell on heaven's other attributes... A realm where supreme joy is found in selfless service. Angels who longed to be in the king's entourage, but who lingered instead on stony Olivet with a few bewildered and lonely disciples. Infinite deity imprisoning himself forever within human tissue for a sacrifice that only a handful would even recognize, let alone accept. A desire for heaven based only on selfish benefits not only distorts heaven, but contains a defect that predisposes us to failure. If our only motive for religion is a selfish desire for reward, Satan can overwhelm us with temptations that appeal to the very same motive. And he has the advantage of proximity, because his rewards can appear to be immediate. So if my religious experience is just causing me to want to do something because I get something, Yeah, but that something is quite a while from now, right? That's until I die and then the resurrection, or until Jesus comes. Yeah, but Satan can tempt me right now with those same types of motivations that I want something. Are you understanding? And we're going to go for the thing that we can get now. We're going to give up what we want most for what we want now. Isn't this fascinating? I suggest that we've too often given our young people this motive, thus programming them to fail. On Sabbath morning, they hear about the rewards of far off heaven. In their own way, they want to be there. And on Saturday night, the devil presents them a self-centered temptation with a more immediate reward. And in giving them a basically selfish reason for religion, we have not equipped them to face temptations that appeal to selfishness. The second, fear of hell. Until the desire for reward, or unlike the desire for reward, fear of hell is negative rather than positive. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. No one wants to face the terrors of eternal destruction. But in the same way that the reward motive is self centered, this one too, sometimes powerfully so. Fear will often drive the meekest citizens to acts under other circumstances that would be murder. A struggling swimmer would stand on the lifeguard's head if given a chance to avoid the terrors of drowning, and a crowd will readily trample fellow human beings to escape fire in a crowded theater. No offense is intended, but those doing the trampling simply want to survive. If fear is not an intrinsically evil motive, neither is it a good one. Like the desire for reward, it's essentially selfish, and it's certainly not stable. If we're driven by fear, we're likely to succumb to whatever threat is the most immediate. The fear of present ridicule, for example, rather than the more distant threat of hell. And motivated, motivated by that, we may superficially appear to keep the law until a more immediate and intense fear challenges us with a conflicting demand. I had the thought of hell that's later, but I also had the rejection of my friends if I don't do what they're doing right now. You with me? For the Adventists rooted in fear motivation, I submit that the end of time will be perilous because it will be a time of fear. There will be a loss of vital services, collapse of constitutional guarantees, and finally a death decree. By using fear as a religious motivator, are we unconsciously programming ourselves to fail in the very test that we so proudly plan to pass, the Mark of the Beast? Is it possible that this is why so many Seventh-day Adventist young people fail to stand successfully against peer pressure? If this is so, then we may unwittingly have been trying to keep a holy law and a holy Sabbath for reasons that are basically selfish. Ellen White states bluntly that selfishness is the root of all evil. If we've brought the root of all evil to our quest for obedience, it is not unreasonable to assume that other self-centered behavior may surface in our religious life. "...judgmentalism, for example, harshness in applying the standards of the law to other people, and even internal dissension among those who claim to believe the same obedience-oriented ethic. Come to the law with a rotten motive, and it logically follows that the resulting quote-unquote obedience will smell." (laughs) Interesting. With these things in mind, he then asks, well, let's look at like a case study in Scripture to see how this works. And he first goes to Mount Sinai... And at Mount Sinai, it's this massive pyrotechnic display, right? Fire, lightning, thunder, the voice of God. The people are absolutely horrified, right? And then God gives them a law that sounds a lot like a bunch of don'ts if you're not careful, right? If you don't understand who's speaking and why. And then he contrasts that with the experience of Elijah, who also was at Mount Sinai when he had his encounter with God. Now, the fire and and all that stuff happened earlier on Mount Carmel. But that revival didn't last long for Elijah. He ended up running from Jezebel, if you remember the story. And so he finds himself then standing at Mount Sinai, and God uses a different approach with him. What does he use? Do you mind remember? A still, small voice. So you got pyrotechnics for the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai, and you have a still, small voice for Elijah at Mount Sinai. Why? What's the difference? He says, I submit, I submit that there was just one difference. The religious maturity of those present. Their experiences were vastly different. For the unconverted, they need something stronger to get their attention, right? You look at the message of John the Baptist. It wasn't full of daisies and flowers, was it? Right? It, it was a strong message because it was intended to awaken a nation that wasn't ready. So, God had to use a different approach with the Israelites because they were largely unconverted. 400 years in an appeasement based religion, they'd forgotten the name of God, let alone how to worship Him appropriately. And this is the means God used, but it wasn't the ideal situation. Elijah was far more uh, what word would I use? What word does he use? Far more mature than the Israelites were who had come out of it, right? He had a different experience, and God could reason with the man with a still small voice. I find it very fascinating how he does this. And he says, These motivations may be equally useless in dealing with a phenomenon known as Laodicean Adventism, though. The, the idea of like a fear, fear of hell or the desire for reward. Those things, they're not really helpful for Laodicean Adventism. And then he, he quotes this case study where they put these mice in this box and they drop food in there and so the mice leave their little their little bedroom and they go and they eat the the food in front of the dish and then they go back and do their thing and they keep training them to do this so when the mice see food dropped in they know what to do well then they put in this electric wire and so when the food drops down and the mouse goes over and tries to bite the food he gets zapped and it freaks the mouse out but he wants the food so he goes again and he gets zapped again and thinks ah, i don't like this but man i really want the food and he goes and he gets zapped again. And what eventually happens is when food drops down in later times for this mouse, he leaves his bedroom, but he won't go to the dish. He's just frozen in the middle, right? Because he wants the reward, but he's afraid of the punishment. And so he's just stuck in the middle, not really getting what he wanted, but afraid to go back to his room too, because he really wants what he wants. This is what Laodicean Adventism basically looks like right? You're not hot or cold. You're just kind of hanging out in the middle, right? And the fear of hell and the reward of heaven don't really get us out of that. We we need something stronger than this and something better than this. This is the point he makes. And he says, few people, if any, come to God Uh, well, he asks, like, well, why is it then that God uses promises of blessings and curses? Why is it that God uses both of these? And he says, I says, this is his thought. He says, I submit that the answer is pragmatic, that the Bible, like the law at Sinai, is designed to reach even the unconverted mind. This is why we have both approaches throughout scripture. But he says, few people, if any, come to God for unselfish reasons. Their motivations typically are centered in their own personal needs, a splitting hangover, a failing marriage, a sense of emptiness in the soul. Like Israel in the desert, most of of us looked at the cross first because we know that we're dying and we want to live. And it's a marvel of God's nature that he not only accepts us thus, but he seeks us with all of our objectionable traits still in place. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, and 10 that while we were still sinners, we were reconciled to God. This is good news for us that even if we do have silly motives and why we come, he's just glad that we came. In fact, he comes looking for us. This is the story of redemption. But he continues, and he asks this profound thought, are the egocentric motivations that lead us to the cross sufficient to keep us there? Did you get that? Are the self-centered motivations that lead us to the cross sufficient to keep us at the cross? That's the question. Now, I'm going to skip ahead with some of this just for time's sake, but I will say this. He says, Like babies, most of us come to the Lord for selfish reasons, and in His mercy He accepts us as we are, but we cannot live on milk forever. Somewhere we must learn that there are better reasons for the second coming than escape from arthritis and property taxes. What about heaven? What about, the, what about the pain felt there every day as long as sin goes on? On occasion, television news gives us a view of other people's agony. The starving child in East Africa. The little boy blinded by an explosive device left over from the Iran-Iraq war. And when we've seen all this that we can stand, we have the option of turning off the television. I just, I don't want to think about that anymore. But then he says this amazing line. He says, heaven does not have that option. Heaven has to watch. God can't turn his eyes away from the madness happening in this world of suffering children, people being abused, gross injustice. He can't turn that off. And we seem to have lost sight of his perspective, his motivations in the process. And then he quotes what Ellen White says in the book Education. Education. She says, those who think of hastening or hindering the gospel, think of it in relation to themselves and to the world, but few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception, sin has brought to the heart of God. If you were to have some meter, some metric of what, how much pain is possible for God to feel, and then you imagine the cross, where do you think that meter goes? Max is out, yeah? That, that's like the epitome of suffering that you would think for God. She says that God has been feeling that pain not just 2,000 years ago. God began feeling that pain when Lucifer fell when Adam fell. And God has continued to suffer with this level of pain from that day forward. Didn't just start at the cross. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to the heart of God. Just think about that. Every time that we don't live up to the full potential that we could, for the benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it breaks God's heart, we're told. Brings grief to him. Not this disappointment and anger at you, but this frustration that you wouldn't choose what he has available for you. You'd rather choose something else. Brings grief to him. But then listen to what she says. When there came upon Israel the calamities that were the sure result of separation from God, you would think he's probably just going to wipe his hand and say, they deserve it. Let them go have their time out. But listen to what she says. When the Israelites went through this, subjugation by their enemies, cruelty and death, it is said that his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. His heart broke for them when they were punished. And that it says in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And that he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Even when God's people hurt for the stupid decisions they make, it still breaks his heart. And he suffers with them, and he still bears them, even in the midst of their rejection. I think that's amazing. Few of us think about God's perspective in the middle of this, his motivations. And this is where he picks up. He says, language could not be plainer. Heaven is hurting now, and so is Jesus And there are far better reasons for hastening His coming than our selfish needs. We should long for the second advent in order to ease his pain as well as ours. And if we're the mature Christians that we claim to be, with the message that will send the world to judgment, we ought to see this more clearly than any people group in the world. He's saying we of all people should know better. And yet in our own movement, we find ourselves in that same two-track option. Fear of hell, reward of heaven, and both of them are basically centered around me and not him. We don't think about him. But if we did think about him, I bet you our motivations would change. He continues, Perhaps we do get it, but the evidence suggests otherwise. Our generally lackluster spirituality and our youth who complain of no fun on Saturdays until the sun goes down and who openly worry about falling in the time of trouble and the bickering that goes on even among believers who consider themselves conservative are symptoms that disturbingly remind us of Israel. Somehow the words of the heavenly witness seem to fit Thou knowest not that thou art naked or wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We ain't got it all together. We may think we do, but we still have some growing to do. We still need to recognize our need of a savior. And this is where he goes in his article. He says there's a a remedy here, and it's built within our framework. He says, on the Day of Atonement, the Israelites were to search their own hearts. They were to search their own motives, right? Whenever the priest was doing his work on their behalf on the Day of Atonement, they were to be thinking, what is it that drives me? Am I right with God? Am I doing as I ought What really is it that motivates me in my experience? And that was meant to do that, and that the law itself can even probe the motives of the human heart. But he continues, "Um, "...the very law we preach and try to keep searches our hearts and reveals a reservoir of selfishness that we ourselves do not understand." And until we find a remedy for that deep-seated egocentricity, we may linger forever on the approach avoidance gradient, that, that thing between fear of hell and reward of heaven, dreaming of victories that we never see, and there could not be a more eloquent proof of our need of a savior. And then he starts going into this beautiful gospel solution. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, Paul said, that we might be justified by faith. The purpose of the law is not just to scare us into submission, it's to drive us to Jesus. The entire point of the law was to show you that you need Jesus and that Jesus has the answers for your weaknesses. It's not just go do this stuff and then then you have to worry about the fear of hell and you can be excited about the reward of heaven. That wasn't the point. The law was meant to bring us to Jesus. The Ten Commandments, Ellen White assures us, are ten promises. If this is so, then law-keeping is a result of our conversion and not the cause. And the evidence suggests that many of us have unintentionally inverted that truth. When When the wind blows, the curtains shake. It does not therefore follow that if I shake the curtains, the wind is blowing. Yet I think we've often made just that mistake. Most Seventh-day Adventists agree that before the end of time, there will be a visitation by the Holy Spirit called the latter rain. It will bring majestic results, great personal victories, and large numbers of baptisms, and a clear vindication of truth. And we long for the latter rain because we know that until it falls, we will not see the Lord. So we want that. I suggest perhaps unconsciously, he says, we've tried to create the latter rain by synthesizing its results. It will bring many people to the church. So we devise programs to bring people into the church, assuming that therefore the latter reign has begun. Because it will bring great personal victories, we strive to keep the law reasoning that if the effect is seen, the cause must also be present. And I fear that we've deluded ourselves. For every thousand souls we baptize each day, hundreds of thousands are born who do not hear the Advent message. And until we come to grips with our own wrong motivations... Our efforts to quote-unquote keep the law will probably continue to confuse our young people, whose acute minds are quick to detect a gap between profession and reality. We may be shaking the curtains, but I've yet to sense the wind of Pentecost. He's not pulling any punches, is he? It is worth noting that the disciples did nothing to force Pentecost. Instead, they engaged in deep repentance They reconciled their differences, and they talked about the Lord that they loved. In the lingering afterglow of Calvary's great explosion, they saw themselves and their motives, hot tempers, unsanctified ambition, and egotism that could turn to cowardice. They saw themselves, and then they looked again at the cross, and they were converted. They saw their selfishness. They saw they were on the wrong track. Their motives were wrong, and they needed Jesus. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful promise. And they were converted. Ten days of this, he says, is all that heaven could endure without a response. The upper room was filled with the Holy Spirit, Ruach, the mighty wind out of the morning of creation. And the same force that helped to form a world now energized human lives so powerfully that they took the gospel to the world in a single generation. I suggest that we do not attempt to manipulate power such as that. What we must do is get self out of the way and let it happen. In Adventism today, there is a regrettable trend toward downgrading the importance of the law of God. It is neither biblical nor sensible, for it removes the moral standard that defines godliness. But to a greater degree than we realize, this may be a reaction to another mistake, that of claiming to quote-unquote keep the law with unsanctified motives forgetting that the law is a proof of conversion and not the cause. Are you with me? Until we recognize this fact, he says, I fear that we're going to hear our own failure described in the blunt but descriptive words of our youth. So when you're confused, young people, something about this just doesn't quite seem right, maybe that's what it is. Maybe we've been thinking about this from the wrong perspective. Maybe what we should really be doing is just searching our own hearts and recognizing that God didn't give me a law as some to-do list to make Him happy, to hope I'm good enough to get out of the bad thing and to get into the good thing. What if the purpose of the law was to show me that I have need of a Savior, that I can't save myself, that I am broken, depraved, and desperately wicked, and that I need Jesus? And the very Jesus that I need desires me. He's pursuing me and he wants me to pursue him with better motives than I have to date. Hey, that makes sense. That's that's desirable, that's attainable. And when you come to Jesus with those motives and confess that I can't keep your law, I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself, you know what he's going to say? I'm so glad you asked. And then he brings us into this beautiful experience of the New Covenant. We'll talk about that tomorrow evening. So I want to close with um, this interesting quote. I was reading through, it's called Life Sketches. It's basically Ella White telling her life story and what happened in the foundation of the Advent movement. And when they were first coming to find the truth, her parents and her, it was causing tension with other believers in the community. And they were starting to disbelieve the idea of eternal torment. But then the church members are saying, no, 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 you can't get rid of that because sinners are not going to come to church and they're not going to follow Jesus without an eternally burning hell. We need that. And this is what Ellen White's mother actually said. This is not a prophet saying anything. This is the mother of Ellen White. And this is what she says. If this is sound Bible truth, what they were coming to learn, instead of preventing the salvation of sinners, it will be the means of winning them to Christ. If the love of God will not induce the rebel to yield, the terrors of an eternal hell will not drive him to repentance. Besides, it does not seem a proper way to win souls to Jesus by appealing to one of the lowest attributes of the mind, abject fear. The love of Jesus attracts and it will subdue the hardest heart. Amen. We don't need to scare people into the kingdom because it actually doesn't work, first of all. They don't stay there, right? He asked, remember earlier, are the motivations, the egotistical motivations, the egocentric motivations that lead us to the cross, are they going to be enough to keep us there? And I think we know the answer is no. When stuff gets hot, I'm going to do what my selfishness feels is best for me. So if the the federal government and the military speak louder than the present truth preachers or my parents, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bow the knee if I don't understand the appropriate motives. So what motivates you, young people? That's the question. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed a prayer, and he was actually praying about you. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? And in this prayer, he asked the Father, he said, Father, I desire that they may be with me where I am. Now, I have a question for you. Do Jesus' prayers get answered, yes or no? Yes, Yes, one person says. We'll take it. Jesus' prayers, we do feel, are going to be answered. Jesus prayed that you would be in heaven. He wants this for you. But there's a variable in this equation, and it's us. It's the decisions we make. it's, It's the affections that drive and lead us. But Jesus wants you there. And he didn't just talk a big game and say, man, I really would like for you to be here. Maybe you've been in a situation where I've had this situation with people or family or others who are like, hey, we really want you to come see us. Like, hey, I don't have the money to to do that. I'm sorry. Like, no, 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 but we really want you to be here. But they don't give you any money to get you there. They just want you to be there, right? They talk a big game, but they don't enable you to do what they'd like to see happen. The beautiful thing about Jesus is not only does he want all to be saved, he does what it takes for all to be saved. He puts his money where his mouth is, right? Jesus lives up to his expectations and his desires. So yes, Jesus wants you in heaven, and he desires you to be in heaven for unselfish reasons because he loves you. My closing thought and question to you this evening, young people, is do you want to be with him for unselfish reasons because you love him? Not because you want freedom from hardship, not because you don't want to go to the red place, you want to go to the glorious place. Is there something about Jesus himself that drives you, that makes you want to be there? And if there is, I bet you you're going to be in good shape. I'll share a story with you in closing. There was a time in my Christian experience, you're just going to laugh at me for showing you this, and you're going to, you're going to complain, so I'm actually going to go back a slide because I don't want to hear your crusty comments right now. Um, laughter trying to make an appeal. So um, it is true. But uh, And it's for your good, by the way. Whether you recognize that or not, it's actually for your good. Anyway, so there was a time in my Christian experience when I first came to know God. And when I say I came to know God, I came to know my need of God. I didn't fully know Him yet. You know what I mean, right? You recognize your need of Jesus, but you don't fully like, know know Him yet in an intimate sense. So this was my experience initially. And I remember when I would have thoughts of being in heaven, I would actually have fear come into my heart. I don't know if you've ever been there. I was literally, fully honest with you young people, I was afraid of heaven. and You know why? Because I just felt like, that's such a long time. What am am I going to do there? Like... Because I have all this stuff in the world that's entertaining, that's engaging, that's delightful to me and desirable to me. What am I going to do there? What am I going to do to pass the time for that long? I mean, I didn't think I was going to be some fat naked baby playing a harp on a cloud. But I just, I did not really appreciate what was available to me at all. Because I didn't understand what was available to me at all. And I literally, young people, was afraid of heaven. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I was. I didn't know any better. Something changed. You know what that was? I fell head over heels in love with a man named Jesus, and everything changed. I no longer was afraid of heaven. It was the only thing I desired. And I'll be really, really honest with you. It frustrates me when I'm sitting in Sabbath school And these long-winded discourses go on about what heaven's going to look like. I think I'm going to have this, and I think I'm going to have that when we really don't know. And I think heaven is going to be beyond gorgeous and far beyond what you could ever imagine, right? And I get frustrated whenever we just go on these long tangents about this stuff, but not the one who's responsible for this stuff. And I get equally frustrated whenever people kind of like lose their lunch over, will my dog be there? Or will I be married there? I, those are questions, I'm not going into that. That's not the point of where I'm going right now. But here's my point. Whatever it is, I assure you, you're not going to be disappointed. There will be no facepalm moments when you get to heaven, I assure you. Right? No SMHs. You're going to be more than content it's far better than you ever would have asked. I guarantee you that. I'll bet everything I own right now on that fact. But here's my point. Those types of things just kind of frustrate me because there's only one thing that really fascinates me about heaven. Everything else is just gravy, right? Like mashed potatoes are good, but gravy makes them even better, right? Like for for some of us. Maybe, Maybe you don't feel that way, that's fine. But my point is, There's part of it that's good, right? Whatever, for me, those are just secondary and tertiary enjoyments. What makes heaven heaven to me is that I can bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus. I can wrap my arms around his legs and I never have to let go. That's what makes heaven heaven to me. I don't have to be separated from Jesus. I don't ever have to wonder whether I'm good enough for Jesus. I can just be his. I can be in His presence and enjoy Him forever. That's what heaven is meant to be, young people. It's Jesus. Anything else is great. It'll it'll make it nice, I promise you. You're not going to be disappointed. But if what makes heaven heaven to you isn't Jesus, it's not going to be heaven to you. You with me? What is it that motivates you? What is it that drives you? Is it this, this desire and this hunger for communion with Christ? Or is it just, I don't want to be tortured until I cease existing, or I really want gold streets, the tree of life, and something else, right? That's not what heaven is about. That's what's going to be in heaven, but that's not what heaven is about. You with me? What is it that motivates you? And I assure you, if you look upon the man upon Calvary, if you read Matthew chapter 27, I think it's verses 24 to 54. If you read the Calvary section of scripture and you just embrace it, if you immerse yourself in it and just dive into the glory of Calvary, you will find yourself falling in love with a man named Jesus. You'll recognize, wait, he, he, he did that for me? Like just me, if I was the only one, Jesus thinks that highly of me? I don't even like me. Why would he do that? Why, why would Jesus do that for me? Because he sees something in you that you don't see in you. And he was willing to risk all for you. When we come to recognize this, we get out of this Laodicean state of just that analysis paralysis those mice had, right? Of not wanting to get zapped, but wanting the food. There's something better for us. And it's available to you this evening. Amen. What motivates you, young people? That's the question. Tomorrow morning, we're going to share something that I'm really excited about. And the topic is Don't Forget Where You Came From. And um, it's based upon some of the best advice I've ever received in ministry. Tomorrow evening, we're going to cover a topic that I'm even more excited about. Like, it's hot fire, y'all. I'm so excited about this, I can't even tell you. Um, And it's called How to Lose the Kingdom. Don't freak out, teachers. It'll be fine. Um, you want to be lost? Follow these seven steps. And you'll, I, that's not the point of the message at all, I assure you. So please give me some time. Um, but I, I, think that it, I think you're going to receive a blessing. I do. And, and it's a topic that I think is under-addressed in Adventism and just in Christianity in general. So has this made sense this evening? Have, have you, yeah? Can, is, can you take some nuggets home from what you've heard this evening? Maybe some thoughts? Okay. Let's pray. God in heaven, I just thank you for these precious young people. I thank you that you desire them to be in heaven more than they do. Lord, even the most selfish person in this room, which is most likely me, if, if my motivations were only about wanting to escape hardship and being in heaven, and it was very strong, your desire for me to be in heaven is far stronger than that, and it's not selfish. Lord, I pray that your desire for us to be saved would awaken a desire within us to want to join you for the right reasons. Lord, may we better understand and appreciate Calvary and how relevant it is to us individually. Bless these young people. Open their eyes to that precious truth, I pray. And I ask this now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.